September 23rd, 2018. My name is James Marino. In the broadcast today, we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a theater journalist and historian with a number of books. His most recent is The Great Parade, which is available everywhere. His columns appear at MTI, Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many of the places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Hello. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at filespotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning. So Peter and Michael spent much of their theater going this week <laughs> on the road. I, don't, I shouldn't say all of their theater going, but... Let's uh, start off with what I am most jealous about and want to hear about first, which is uh, Passion at the Signature Theater. Michael, you got to see that, and uh, tell me, should we all be getting in our cars and heading to D.C.? Well, you should have been, except I think uh, I, I think it might end this <laughs> this coming weekend, or maybe uh, uh, you know I'm sorry I didn't check the closing date. I know it's uh, I did not get there till the end of the run. I did not want to miss it though. Uh, signature uh, down in uh, actually in Sherlington Village in uh, Arlington, just outside of DC, has become well known for its wonderful productions in general and especially uh Sondheim productions and uh this one I knew was going to be starring Natasha Diaz as Fosca uh whom I like very much uh also the uh her Giorgio for uh, most of the production was Claiborne Elder who has been a guest on our podcast in the past and uh is also known to many of our listeners I'm sure but also um I knew that uh, towards the end of the run that uh, another actor that I really, really enjoy, singing actor Gregory Mayhew, was going to be scheduled to be go on to go on as Giorgio for a few performances. And as it turned out, uh, the time that I could get to D.C. was overlapping those performances. So I was looking forward to seeing uh, Greg Mayhew and Natasha Diaz in Passion. And I, it did not disappoint, nor did the production. Um, this is uh, a Passion Music and Lyrics by Stephen Sondheim, book by James Lapine, original Broadway production, 1994, uh, set in Italy, 1863, and it's the story of uh, Fosca, a ill and very extremely physically unattractive woman who forms a desperate, uh, very intense uh, attachment to a young captain named Giorgio, who is stationed at this military outpost where she lives with her cousin and uh, the, the rest of the soldiers are there. Uh, Giorgio is in the middle of an affair with Clara uh, in in Milan. Uh, it, it turns out that uh, she, we learn about halfway through the show that she is a married woman. Uh, so there's that, that big complication there to that relationship. But... Um, Passion is uh, one of Sondheim's most uh, intense musicals, I would say. It, it, it arouses a lot of uh, different emotions in the audience. Uh, the character of Fosca has been very controversial uh, because she is relentless in her pursuit of Giorgio uh, to the point where if the show is not 
played really, really well and directed very well and very sensitively. Uh, she can come across as a horrible, very scary witch-like type of person. And uh, that's what the, the, the show is about. It's about the nature of love and uh, loving someone unconditionally and, uh, and how much one can give over to that and, and whether one should continue to pursue someone when it seems like they are not interested by any means whatsoever. Uh, it's a, it's a feminist piece in, in many ways because Fosca is so, uh, is so proactive and so relentless in her pursuit of this man whom she loves. Um, and I, I noticed something in the show that I, I guess I had noticed before, but it's, uh, really stuck out of me this time. Uh, more than once, Giorgio sings to Clara, God, you are so beautiful. And then towards the end of the show, Fosca sings that to Giorgio. And that's just the kind of thing that uh, women, you know, a woman would almost certainly not say to a man, especially not in Italy in 1863. Uh, so she's a modern woman in, in many respects, Fosca is. This um, musical was based on Passione d'Amore, uh, which was a, a film that in turn had been based on a, a, a novel, a book called Fosca. And uh, that's interesting that uh, passione d'amore obviously means passion of love. Um, but there is the other meaning of passion, as in the, the, the suffering and death of Jesus Christ. And, I, and it occurred to me that that uh, could apply here as well in terms of being about Fosca's passion, because she is very ill from the time that we meet her. And in fact, she does die at the end of the show. Um, so this pieces about sexual and romantic passion and all-consuming uh, love. Uh, at one point, in one of the most famous lyrics in the show, Fosca sings to Giorgio, loving you is not a choice, it's who I am. And by the way, um, Signature has come up with t-shirts uh. saying, <laughs> loving you loving Sondheim is not a choice, it's who I am. And uh. they have apparently become viral sensations and have been snapped up by uh, by Sunai fans all over the, the country and presumably the world. So um, you never know what's going to hit on a T-shirt, but they but they certainly hit on it. And I think that's great. Um, this is a, a, a wonderful production. Natasha Diaz is stellar as Fosca. She um, she succeeds completely in making the character sympathetic uh, and not alienating the audience. We uh, truly understand how Giorgio, beautifully sung and acted by Gregory Mayhew, uh, could start out uh, being very put off by her attentions and even doing everything he can to get away from her, but then come to the realization that uh, her love for him is very deep and very real and, and that no one has ever loved her like she has. Uh, in the role of Clara, we had Stephanie Lee doing, doing a beautiful job in that role and, and, and certainly having the requisite physical beauty. Um, the uh, Clara, the role was originally created by, of course, the late great Marin Maisie. And um, I believe the, the, uh, 
well, the last part of the run of this show, uh, each performance was dedicated to Marin. There was a slip in the uh, in the program for the performance that I attended. Uh, so that was wonderful that, that she was commemorated in that way. Um, the production uh, the audience was seated uh, uh, on opposite sides of a of a long and fairly narrow playing area. Uh, not not three quarter thrust in this case. Uh, very interesting set design by Lee Savage with a, a garden of beautiful flowers uh, appearing to grow downward from the ceiling, uh, and that, that I thought that that was really beautiful. There were also some chandeliers in there, and I didn't quite understand the mixing of those two elements. But other than that, it it, it was really beautiful, and it's um, it, it's always interesting to see this particular show because uh, the original production on Broadway was notable for for alienating many, many audience members. Uh, I think many of us felt that James Lapine's direction uh, actually did not do the show any favors and there was uh, inappropriate laughter during certain moments of the original production and also uh, much uh, much hatred expressed of Fosca by by many people who saw that production. But uh, subsequent productions that I have seen, including the Off Broadway one at CSC, and now this one, um, I, I guess through a combination of more sensitive direction and really excellent acting, have managed to. Um, definitely uh, downplay that aspect of the show and 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 bring forth what it was that Sondheim and Lapine have been going for, uh, what they were going for when they wrote it originally. So I'm very glad that I went. I'm sorry uh, that I didn't get there till the end of the run, but it was definitely a trip worth making. Well, there's another factor as well, of course, and that is uh, what Frank Rich wrote when he uh, reviewed Into the Woods, when he said, time and repeated hearings <laughs> always make a difference with Sondheim scores. So so that's uh, not an irrelevant factor either. So uh, sometimes we have to catch up with uh, the masters. So, uh, oh, absolutely. And the more, you know, the more <laughs> complex shows. This one, by the way, directed by Matthew Gardner, uh, he, I think, did a superb job in, in, in a really a, a difficult show. And, and also, uh, I, I wanted to comment that, uh, yes, the three leads were, all three of them were excellent. And I think, uh, in seeing the show again, I think that Giorgio is one of the most difficult roles ever written, in a way even more so than Fosca, because he... Uh, so much of the evening, he just spent, uh, you know, spends reacting to what she is doing, and also to make that transition credible, that he really goes from being quite frightened of her to realizing that she does love him, and and eventually consummating their relationship right before she she dies. Uh, it, it that that's a a big challenge, and and certainly I think Greg Mayhew was up to it. He did a really, really fabulous job with the role. So um, I think that I've said this on here before, so forgive me if I'm repeating myself, but I, I was I was lucky enough to go to the opening of Passion on Broadway, oh. uh, and I hated it. Uh. Hated it. And then I got the recording, the cast recording, yeah, we are. and I listened to it, and I, it's possibly one of my favorite shows. Time and repeated hearings. <laughs> and then I went back to see it again, and I hated it. 
So, <laughs> and I was like, uh, but that was the Broadway production. And so uh, I, I'm really anxious to see a good production of it again. Uh, and I'm so sorry that I missed this. As you were, uh, you're correct, Michael, it ends today, September 23rd. So unless you have a time vehicle and a very fast car, if you're in New York, you're, gonna, <laughs> you're going to miss it. Um, but I did want to point out, don't miss uh, Signature Theater in Arlington's next uh, bunch of things. I'm going to put on my Karnak uh, hat and predict that Steve, uh, that uh, that that Peter Felicia will head to oh. Arlington, Virginia, in April or May of 2019 when the Signature Theater does Grand Hotel. Yeah. Um, Nice, yeah. And uh, coming up also, they have a production um, sooner than that, in October through January, of Billy Elliot. So uh, Signature Theater has got a, a very full schedule, and that's just two of the many different things that Signature Theater is doing. So, uh, oh, and it was announced uh, just recently that their, uh, basically their production of Titanic, uh, yes. which was directed by Eric Schaefer, uh, their artistic director, will be coming to Broadway. Mm-hmm. So yes, they're they're in the news. <laughs> and to think that they started in a, a virtual garage um, in a part of town that uh, made you fear for your lives. Um, so that's what's really wonderful to Congress? see a theater. <laughs> Sorry. Good for you. No, no, no. <laughs> Guilty as charged. Anyway, um, so um, to think that they've really made this quantum leap to a, a glorious space, you know, so it's, it's, it's really wonderful to see what's happened to regional theaters around the country because when I recently went to Arena, I was really surprised at how magnificent that was because I hadn't been there in a long, long yeah. time, like 20 years. So um, it's really great to see these regional theaters flourish. Another great regional theater is uh, Two River Theater Company in Red Bank, New Jersey. Last week we talked about Pamela's first musical. Michael got a chance to see it, but now Peter has seen it in his uh, travails outside of the Big Apple. So, Peter, tell <laughs> us about Pamela's first musical. Well, I'll, uh, <laughs> I, I, I wish I could be more enthusiastic, um, but um, I did uh, find it uh, – terribly problematic in a number of ways. Now, first off, uh, when you enter, there's this cute little adorable set of a girl's bedroom and uh, pastel, pretty stuffed animals, all that kind of stuff. Um, and uh, that's fine. But uh, here we have Pamela telling us that she's crazy for original cast albums. Um, certainly a feeling I understand. So uh, where are they? There's nothing in the room to suggest that she likes them. Uh, where are the window cards for Wicked? Where are the mugs for uh, Little Mermaid? Where are the T-shirts for Frozen? Um, now, you might say, well, wait a minute. She hasn't gone to a Broadway show yet. Okay, but she says she has original cast albums, and I imagine they came from Aunt Louise because her father, nice guy, widower, but he's really not into Broadway. Um, and I don't mean that in the worst sense of the word, um, that he's anti-Broadway. He just doesn't give it a thought. She has two brothers who certainly think she's a weirdo. The father does too, frankly. Um, but if Aunt Louise, um, uh, I assume, has been giving her these original cast albums, that's what I'm assuming. She lives in Connecticut. It must be very, very, very far east in Connecticut because I would think that Aunt Louise would have got her to Broadway before now because she's 11 years old. This is her birthday, in fact. So... Um, I, I think the set design should really reflect this. Um, you know, I was also confused. Michael, you saw it. I was also, yeah. it seemed like from a couple of lines of dialogue, and I don't remember what they were, that this play isn't taking place in the present. 
that it's in the past. Did you get that um, feeling? And well, I was thinking about that when you, uh, in terms of what you just said. Uh, I think it was not completely clear. And if it is the present, then you could say that maybe all that stuff, uh, all the cast albums are on her iPod or her. Uh. <laughs> Our MP3 player. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. You know, but if it's in the past, okay, you know. Yeah, um, right. So what? Uh, merchandising has been going on for a long time, a lot more than 11 years. So um, Absolutely. It would be, it, it'd be fun, you know, in this context to see this happen. You know, I, so um, I think that really is something that should happen. Well, anyway, it's her birthday, and she comes down uh, to have a celebration. She's not really enthusiastic about coming down because she's not really happy with um, the older daughter of of um, her father's um, neighbor. And um, the girl sort of uh, treats her uh, condescendingly. But what happens is the father announces he's marrying this girl's mother. And I don't know if this would actually happen at a birthday party. So I think that's a bit of a problem. But what I really didn't like was that um, Pamela essentially puts her arms akimbo and says, you're not my mother. And, you know, I, I think that's a big mistake because what I think should happen is that Pamela should be upset about it, be brave about it, not shed a tear about it, accept it. And then we'd feel bad for her. You know, but the, now, in a strange way, we want her taken down a peg because she just doesn't um, have the feeling um, that she should have uh, in terms of being polite to this woman. I mean, whatever the circumstances, I think you really have to. Uh, go by that famous rule that if you cry, the audience won't. And if you don't, the audience will. So I think that's a big problem here that she's kind of bratty. Um, by the way, that's wrapped up much too easily at the end of the show. The fact that the father will not marry uh, the woman, but that's another story mm-hmm. and perhaps something I shouldn't have given away. But anyway, all right, well, in comes Aunt Louise, a breath of fresh air, and she's very much an Auntie Mame type, very well played by Carolee Carmelo. And um, there she is. Take, she's going to talk about how wonderful Broadway is. And my favorite lyric is, I go twice on matinee days. I think that's a really uh, smart lyric. So um, what's also smart is that they've made Aunt Louise the father's sister and not the sister-in-law, which, of course, could have happened. She'd still be Aunt Louise. But that's really smart because what happens here is we know that the father is not going to wind up with uh, Aunt Louise. And I think if we're a sister-in-law, we might suspect that. So that's off the table right away. The second thing, too, is it's really much harder to get rid of your sister if you don't like what she's doing to your child. And they're not crazy, you know, as, as, um, as Kevin says, you know, um, there's unique and there's eccentric. And your Aunt Louise is eccentric. Uh, and I dare say if we were a sister-in-law, he would forbid her to come to the house or there'd be words and all that kind of stuff. But with a sister, you can't do that. So I think that was a very smart uh, thing. And by the way, none of that, none of that is in the original uh, Wendy Wasserstein book that started all this, a children's book, a picture book with wonderful pictures of um, by Andrew Jackness, um, tremendous drawings, really great. So – Speaking of those, they get to New York, and unfortunately, um, you see sort of like a pre <laughs> pre twenty uh, first century forty second Street. There are all these unsavory looking characters coming around, and I think that's exactly wrong. Um, what's really wonderful, the best drawing in the book, which is phenomenal, is one where 
uh, Pamela gets her first glimpse of 45th Street. Never mind 42nd Street. 45th Street, where there are, count them, seven legitimate theaters. And uh, under those circumstances, her eyes should be as bright as the um, marquees. So um, that's what you should show rather than um, the senior side of New York. So I think that um, is a, a miscalculation as well. So um, – Anyway, Manhattan Moves Me is the song that's done, and some of it even has a feeling of Big Spender, which is not irrelevant to this because Cy Coleman wrote the music to Sweet Charity and Big Spender and wrote the music for this. Um, so um, it's, right, it's right for the song that they've written, but it's, I think it's wrong for what this uh, show should be doing. I, I want to see all these marquees come in with all these um, names of shows. There's a movie from way back in the 50s called Stage Struck, which is really terrific from the vantage point of the crowd. Credits because you see her walking down for the the girl who stays struck coming to New York wanting to be an actress walking down 45th Street and you see all the marquees for all the shows that were currently playing then um, I don't recommend the movie but I recommend the first four minutes so anyway um, so uh, I do think that these are all um, pretty uh, strange decisions that are made um, and I don't know why they were made well um, Aunt Louise, before they go, they take uh, Pamela for a makeover, uh, where she's dressed by Robert, who's a very stereotypical um, dresser. I'm sure you know what I mean. Um, but he does have a good sentiment when he talks about the different meaning of family. That he, he doesn't quite say this, but it is true that most of us have learned that we find our families, that uh, sometimes our families let us down. In fact, I was talking to a young man um, who's in a current production who told me um, he's 26 years old and he told me his father has never come to see him mm. in any of the professional productions that he has ever um, been in. The father was a high school quarterback who married his cheerleader um, girlfriend and they've been married now and forever and the mother comes to see him and the father won't. You know, so you do find your family, no question about that. So, um, so anyway, uh, Pamela is really dressed to the nines, maybe the tens or elevens for this uh, event. And I wonder how she's going to feel when she sees girls her age in jeans and flip flops at the theater, but that's another story, I guess. Um, so, um, so then we get to the musical. And um, well, how much of this story Wendy Wasserstein wrote um, is, of course, up for grabs. We don't know. Sad to say she died in 2006 and her old friend Christopher Durang took over. But I think it's easy to guess that he wrote the entire section with The Sound of Music as parody, uh, where Maria um, becomes interested in Captain Von Trapezoid. Not trap, but trapezoid. So that's very Christopher Durang, no question about that. And um, there's um, a good deal of fun here for those of us who are really um, know musical theater. And um, in fact, there's a moment where Maria sheds her nun's outfit and is in a Tyrolean outfit. And the music is, is actually the same music that is used when the trumpet player stands up in the Overture Gypsy and plays it. Um, so it's a stripper music, that type of thing. But um, I'm not sure that uh, the musical that uh, Pamela is seeing should be uh, a parody musical. I think it should be one with a lot of heart uh, and a lot of soul. And I grant you that's harder to write than a parody. By all means, I'll grant you that's very, very hard. A good idea, though, is that Pamela um, sees herself in the show, and she actually becomes part of the musical, and I think that's a terrific idea. So, um, And, um, yeah, I, I, if it comes to town, it really seems like a, an off-Broadway-sized show that's essentially um, 
well, two rivers in between, I would say, um, uh, New World Stages and the Booth Theater um, in terms of seating capacity. Glorious theater, by the way, if you haven't been there, glorious. And um, But it does seem more like an off-Broadway show. And I, of course, economics being what they are, I, I don't see it playing off-Broadway. Um, commercial off-Broadway is really suffering. Um, uh, limited engagements, uh, off-Broadway companies like Second Stage um, and Manhattan Theater Club, which of course now have a Broadway presence. But um, Classic Stage Company is, is a good example of a theater that seems to be doing well, uh, but it's limited runs. It's not commercial shows. I mean, the days of Little Mary Sunshine opening and running 1,143 performances is long gone. So um, under those circumstances, I don't know what's going to happen with Pamela's first musical. But um, I should also mention that David Garrison plays a producer, and there's a smart idea here, too, because they're in Sardis. And by the way, you do see replications of Sardi's um, caricatures, and they're the real things, but I'm meaning they're replications of the real things. I mean, the Liza Minnelli, the Zero Mostels are the ones you'll actually see if you go to Sardi's. Um, and there's a smart idea here because the producer uh, of the musical that Pamela will be seeing uh, is um, sees a critic. Uh, eating in the distance and he says oh oh that critic oh my god he never likes anything and he goes into a song parodying what the critic feels uh it's very very specific um and um i'm not sure that much of the audience will get the joke about how the needlelanders don't keep up their theaters um they might even be a little confused when he talks about i hate all lyricists from aaron's to zippel and of course david zippel wrote the lyrics so that's a <laughs> nice um little in joke um uh, i'm not sure that the general public knows lynn aaron's i wish the general public would, but I'm not sure that they know that name. So um, there are a lot of inside jokes, and I wish the song were a little more funny than it is. Um, so, But um, what's smart here is that um, we don't see the critic um, coming out with all these, um, I, I know what I like and I don't like this and I don't like that, because um, that would um, having it once removed allows the producer to really um, lay it on thick because it's not the critic himself. So I think that's a very smart idea. If you're going to have that type of song, it's smarter to have the producer do it and mock the critic than have the critic come out and seem very arch and very flamboyant and very uh, whatever you want to make him. But um, so uh, I also have to say, you know, this may be a result of reading the uh, children's book, but um, I do have to say that uh, it did feel padded to me that they were really um, clutching at songs uh, rather than songs coming naturally much of the time. You know, uh, if we're going to make this an hour and a half long, we got to do something. So, um, and uh, there are plenty of um, in jokes with the character's name too. The star of the show is Mary Ethel Bernadette, um, and there was a lot of that in Wendy's book. Too much of it, I think, um, for little kids. And uh, but this is more for a general audience, and um, very nicely staged by Gracia. Graciela Danielle. I have no problem with that at all. And of course, Two River usually does phenomenal productions, and this is no um, exception to the rule. So um, I don't know if we'll ever see Pamela's first musical again. Um, and um, in a way, I'd like it to, to happen, but I would like Pamela to see a musical that uh, sends her over the moon rather than um, makes her um, even at one point she's even disappointed in it. And I understand why. Okay, so that is Pamela's first musical at the Two River Theater in Red Bank, New Jersey, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, through October 7th. Uh, so we have a couple of weeks left to see that. 
Michael, uh, you got from Arlington over to Washington, D.C. to see Macbeth at the Folger Theater. So tell us about that. Yeah, um, for those of our listeners who don't know, Arlington is just outside of D.C., uh, but I like to... uh, Definitely try to get to signature when when I'm down there. I usually usually it's a signature production that brings me there, and then I see what else is playing elsewhere. Uh, this uh, was a <laughs> production of Macbeth such as you will never see again. I, I, I feel fairly safe in saying, done at the Folger Theater um, in uh, in cooperation with the Folger Consort, which is a, a small uh, chamber music group that plays. Uh, music uh, of centuries past on period style instruments and um basically what this is uh, this is something i did not know uh before getting the press release to this production during the restoration in england uh, it was common for adaptations of shakespeare to be presented um with rewritten lines (laughs) um and also with music added uh, to make them more like this kind of stage spectacle types of things. And I uh, thought, well, this sounds really interesting. Let me go see this because when, if ever, will anyone else ever do this again? And so I I realized from the beginning that it would probably be more a curiosity thing uh, than uh, – completely satisfying because first of all uh macbeth i i I would say it's my favorite of all the shakespeare plays in terms of being so incredibly focused uh there's almost no dead wood in it uh little of the 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 filler that is in so many of the other plays uh the the plot is very lean and the characters so 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 clear and strong. Uh, so the addition of music, um, it seemed to me even before I saw this production might, uh, work against that. And, and indeed it did. Uh, there were extended musical sequences for the witches in particular. Um, they, they have the vocal sequences in the show, uh, not, not in their very first scene, interestingly enough, but in their subsequent appearances, they did a lot of singing. By the way, we had, in this case, we had two female witches and one male witch, uh, for whatever that's worth. And that was probably more for musical reasons than anything else. Um, and then uh, much of the rest of the show had uh, musical underscoring uh, played by the, the Folger Consort, which was at a, seated on a platform um, up, upstate center for the most part. Uh, this uh, adaptation from the restoration was by, is by William Davenant, and this production was directed by Robert Richmond. Um, but it's really, really weird. Uh, you might think, well, well, uh, okay. You might say to yourself hearing that these kind of adaptations existed, uh, perhaps they did it because the language uh, of Shakespeare was already starting to become somewhat outmoded by the restoration. Uh, so this would have been, um, uh, let's see, uh, this, this would have been done in the 1660s, these adaptations. Uh, but no, uh, it's not that there are, uh, are, are words that are, and phrases that have already become arcane that were changed. It's just, just rewriting for the purpose of 
rewriting, and it's very, very odd. Um, uh, instead of out, out, brief candle, we get out, out, short candle. Um, every, actually, every, every other word in the beautiful tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow speech that Macbeth has about the death of his wife uh, seemed to be rewritten with a, 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 you know, alternative adjectives and verbs brought in. Uh, screw your screw your courage to the sticking place uh, was was rewritten as something less effective that I didn't get a chance to write down and um, I yeah so I, I, I guess uh, in retrospect many of us looking back would say that this was largely just a, a, a an example of ego on the part of this Davenant fellow who rewrote it because for heaven's sake you know but um Obviously, the Shakespeare versions have survived, and, and this kind of thing is just a, a very weird curiosity. Uh, I'm, I am really glad that I saw it because, as I say, uh, it's the rarest of the rare. Uh-huh. Um, uh, unfortunately, um, I, I do think that a, a big mistake was committed here by the director, Robert Richmond, because aside from all of the changes that I just mentioned, and I, and I haven't even – scratch the surface um the role of lady macduff uh in this in this version is greatly expanded and also the role of seton of, of all of all people um and there are you know there are, there's no porter in it uh you know which fine but there, there, there's lots and lots of changes in in uh in dialogue and and uh, not the overall plot but but plot details um so but on top of all of that, <laughs> uh, for some reason, uh, the director decided to lay this additional concept. And to quote him in the program note, the concept for this production is a play within a play, a one-time performance staged as a fundraising event for Bedlam, the mental asylum in London, two weeks after the Great Fire in 1666. The inmates of the asylum have been rehearsing in roles that are meaningful to their personalities, conditions, and relationships. And then he goes on and on. Uh, uh, Things go horribly wrong. The murder of Duncan, played by the warden uh, of the asylum, prompts a significant shift in the production. The theatrical prop knives are switched and, and Macbeth murders the warden before a live audience and his fellow inmates, blah, 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 blah. So uh, we as the audience were being asked to process not only these significant changes in the text, but also this overlay of this separate concept, which to me seemed really unnecessary and also somewhat tired at this point because I think uh, – I, I think probably many of us have seen several shows uh, <laughs> over our theater-going lifetime that have been set in, in insane asylums. So that that I thought was a, a really big mistake. And I'm surprised uh, that the director would have decided to do that given the rarity of this version to begin with. Uh, there were some excellent performances, including three uh, by members of uh, one family, Macbeth – is Ian Merrill Peaks, uh, Lady Macduff is Karen Peaks, and Fleance is Owen Peaks, their son, and they they all did excellent jobs. Um, the uh, Lady Macbeth also really well played by Kate Eastwood Norris. Uh, the music, by the way, is mostly by John Eccles and was written for 
this adaptation originally in the 1600s. Also some songs by Purcell and Locke. And the music was very well performed, but it was a, a very odd duck that, um, as I say, I... I, I, I assumed it would be a curiosity and indeed that's what it is uh i really thank the folger for producing at the folger theater and the folger consort but i don't know if we'll ever see it again (laughs) (laughs) well uh maybe not getting to see it again because it ends today september 23rd so unless you have the aforementioned time machine and fast car (laughs) Uh, you will not be able to get to uh, the Folger Theater in Washington, D.C. from New York to see it. Uh, Peter, you got in your fast car and uh, drove down to Philadelphia from uh, – was this before or after Two River Theater? Were you halfway or was it two separate trips? <laughs> separate trips, really. Um, you know, I realized that in um, in a total of uh, six – no, eight days I will see shows in six different states because uh, I'm not through yet, as as you will hear as time goes on. Never but through. Yes. <laughs> no. I, um, let me say the name of the show. It is Irving Berlin's Holiday Inn. I don't know if I said that at the Walnut Street oh, Theater in no. Philadelphia. Yeah. No, that's all right. Uh, I interrupted you, so I'm not surprised. Uh, Irving Berlin, of course, who wrote a song for every holiday uh, and every special occasion, um, certainly wrote the movie Holiday Inn, which even spurred a chain of motels uh, that started in the 50s. And um, Holiday Inn is a a fun movie, though I don't think we'll ever see the Abraham number again. And if you don't know what I mean, see the movie or don't see it. That's perfectly fine, too. But uh, this Holiday Inn uh, is a situation where... Um, Jim Hardy is paired with Lila Dixon. They're um, an, uh, a duo, uh, an entertainment duo, a, a nice act they have. They're doing extraordinarily well um, for people who are coming up in the world. They haven't made the big time yet, but that looks like that could possibly happen. So imagine Lila's feelings when Jim says he doesn't want to do it anymore. He wants to buy a, a, a farm in Connecticut and, and um, farming um, and she uh, doesn't feel that that's how she wants to spend her time. But they give it a little time. They're engaged, you know, so they're supposed to be married. And uh, he'll go out there for a while, and she is going to go out uh, with um, another entertainer and start an act out in California. And there's a, a line about how um, California versus Connecticut, because in Connecticut it's where you repress your feelings. I'm not sure that's true of Yaley's, but anyway, um, that's the line. So so one goes <laughs> east, one goes west. And um, what's really nice is that when uh, Lila returns to the farm, the dialogue um, – is is very nicely written, very smartly written. I don't know if it was Gordon Greenberg or Chad Hodge who came up with the idea. But considering the fact that Lila seems to be a bit of an Adelaide in Miss uh, in Guys and Dolls type of entertainer, um, with that squeaky voice, you might expect her to be silly all the way through. And they give her some really good dialogue where she tells him that this is not what she wants out of life. Um, she comes, you get the impression she comes there and she's going to give it a chance for like <laughs> at least a few minutes. Not a long time because she does indicate later that the cab is waiting for her. But you do get the impression because she does believe she loves this man that she will at least give the place a look over. She doesn't expect to change her mind, but she's open 
open to changing her mind. And the dialogue is very nice here in the way that she lets him down. So um, who comes in but Linda Mason, and the farm is Mason Farms. It's been foreclosed. Jim has taken over. So you expect that Linda will come in, and she's going to be morose or um, uh, furious or uh, antagonistic towards him for being the person who bought the uh, foreclosed farm, even though it's nothing personal. Um, Not at all. And a, a terrific, terrific, terrific performance by Carrie Michelle Miller in this role. My favorite type of acting, which doesn't seem to be acting at all. Very natural and uh, quite wonderful. And she doesn't seem like she's in denial when she says to him, uh, essentially, this isn't dialogue, but essentially, I've got to get on with my life. This part of my life is over. Yes, I grew up here. Yes, I loved it here. But now I'm on to other things, and that's all there is to it. And uh, that's very tricky that she could seem like as if she was trying to convince herself. None of that is happening there. So you really get a sense of who this woman is, and you really like her for being who she is. There's also tremendous chemistry between her and Ben Dibble. You may not know the name, but if you live in Philadelphia and you pay attention to the theater at all, you know Ben Dibble's name. You also know Mary Martello's name, and she's there to play the uh, handyman, that's what they call her, what can I tell you, Louise, um, who um, fixes things and also is interested in fixing up uh, Jim, Ben Dibble, with um, Linda. Um, So um, so, – what happens, of course, is very predictable, but there are a few bumps along the way. If, if you haven't seen Holiday in either at Good Speed or on Broadway, um, you're going to be, um, I don't want to say thrown for a loop. That's much too um, aggrandizing. But you, you will um, say, hmm, that isn't working out exactly as I thought I would. So, um, so I really like uh, the fact that um, Lila isn't a bitch. I love the fact that Linda is very natural. Um, and she's very good when Louise tries to fix them up when she first comes in and she knows it's a fix up uh, Linda does and she's very nervous about the whole situation so uh, and of course what uh, the real reason for the show to begin with needless to say um, are the uh, Irving Berlin songs and um, name a hit and you'll probably uh, hear it there there are some um, reasonable obscurities too let's take an old fashioned walk which was uh, in uh, Miss Liberty the 1949 show that didn't work out so well for Irving Berlin or Mozart or Robert Sherwood um, is in there too and um, you might feel that it's a lovely day today from Call Me Madam is a little too familiar to be in the show but I'm not sure that's true anymore so and you get some movie songs too like Cheek to Cheek so um, a good time was had by all and it's a very accomplished production I really um, have to applaud the slickness of the production that's not a uh, a negative thing slick is uh, a good thing between um charles abbott who directed michelle Gaudet, who uh, did the choreography nice nice work from the ensemble uh, behind uh, everyone too so uh, a very worthwhile uh, event and it was just nice to see so many people there having such a wonderful time and uh, reacting to the nostalgia that is very well served here Okay, so that's uh, Irving Berlin's Holiday Inn at the Walnut Street Theater in Philadelphia. It's uh, through October 21st, so you have uh, about a month or so to get to see that as well. By the Michael. way, let me also say – no, let me say this. I'm sorry. I don't mean to interrupt. But um, yeah, yeah, I've heard a lot of people say, uh, gee, isn't it a little early for Holiday Inn? I mean, you know, <laughs> it's – 
it's only September and Christmas um, is a little bit away. Um, well, don't forget it's holiday in. They deal with all the holidays. They deal with Valentine's Day. They deal with Thanksgiving. So it's not really a Christmas show, uh, even though, of course, White Christmas is in it. And by the way, if you go to Costco, all the Christmas <laughs> merchandise is out already. <laughs> so and, why can't Walnut Street Theater? Go ahead, Michael. I was in a store the other night, and they had Halloween stuff up. And I'm like, it's not even October 1st. Oh, well, Halloween stuff. Uh, I saw it being loaded into the Balducci's next, to, next door to me uh, <laughs> the day after Labor Day. You know, <laughs> there were the pumpkins, you know, and pumpkin iced coffee. Yeah, the day after Labor Day. But, you know, considering the fact that we're all so busy and time flies so quickly, you know, maybe it's not such a bad idea to uh, – be aware of these things that we, uh, you know, rather than have 12 days to Christmas and not have plenty of time to do our Christmas shopping. <laughs> have either one you been to the Christmas tree shop, store shops, Christmas tree shops? Uh, I, forget I don't know about Christmas. Exactly. I don't know about Christmas tree, but near me on 7th Avenue, there's a store all year that sells Christmas uh, stuff mm-hmm. all, yeah. all year round. It's always open. Is that the one you <laughs> Uh, I don't know if that uh, is the Christmas tree shop and it's open 12 months a year. It's uh, a mainstay in uh, in uh, a handful of malls that uh, my wife and I visit all the time. And we're always oh. stopping in there. They have stuff all year round. Mm-hmm. So, all yes. right. They should they should sponsor Irving Berlin's Holiday Inn. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> so Michael and Peter got a chance to see uh, the new group's production of The True, which is over at the Pershing Square Signature Center, which is different than the signature that Michael's at in Arlington, Virginia. Yep. Uh, so uh, this show by Char White and directed by Scott Elliott with Edie Falco, Michael McKean, and Peter Scolari, uh, the Hollywood uh, – Stars have come out to rain on off Broadway. So, Peter and Michael, what do you what do you think about think about this? Michael, why don't you go first? Well, I will say Peter just mentioned that, uh, and I certainly agree with him. My my favorite kind of acting is also acting, which doesn't appear to be acting at all. And I would say those three people you just mentioned give exemplary uh, performances in that style uh edie falco michael mckean and peter scolari the, uh this is a very worthy new play by char white uh set in albany in 1977 and it's about this woman named dorothea polly newton who is a very very much a very strong force in local politics in albany and she has been for decades she is um uh, largely, uh, largely responsible for uh, the mayor, uh, which is the character played by Michael McKean, having been mayor for a really long time, and she just is a, a, a force. Uh, it's, it's obvious in the first scene, which is uh, between th- those three actors, um, Edie Falco as as Polly and uh, Michael McKean as Erastus. Corning the third, and uh, Peter Scolari as uh, Polly's husband. Um, so they're they're sitting there, and, and uh, they're. There's a lot of discussion about what's going to happen now because things are changing uh, in, in in the local political world and there are new people coming up and trying to to get in. And it seems like that the mayor is going to have a, uh, a real fight in um, the primary, which is coming up, uh, whereas he one gets the feeling that he until now he really hasn't had any uh, major challenges. So um, – 
one fascinating thing is I actually did not know until after I saw this play that Dorothea Polly Newton is based on a real life character who was the grandmother of Kirsten Gillibrand, the, the current U.S. senator from New York. And I'm glad that I didn't know that when I saw it because I, uh, I think perhaps I, I would have – uh, reacted to the play differently as it was unfolding if I had known that it was about a real person. Uh, whereas here I was just judging it as if it were, you know, as if these were all fictional characters. Uh, so I'm glad I didn't know that, but, but that is the case. Uh, uh, it's, uh, a wonderful vehicle for actors. I, I think very, very well written by Shar White, who uh, I, ha- I had to look it up to remind myself, Shar White is a man. Uh, it's interesting to to see a man write about a, a woman who is such a force in politics in the 70s. And there is much, uh, I mean, uh, there's not much direct discussion of, of a woman's place in politics in the 70s, but uh, there is some, and we can obviously look at it through the, the lens of 2018 and see uh, how things have changed and how they haven't uh, in some ways. So uh, I I was thinking recently, we've seen um, at least two other major plays that I could think of about women in politics recently. And those were also both written by men. The City of Conversation, that really excellent play that that was at Lincoln Center by Anthony Jardina. And The Parisian Woman, which was an awful play, I thought, uh, by Bo Willimon, which was on Broadway. Um, So I'm glad uh, that the subject has been brought up. I'm sure that I'm sure that um, we will see more plays by women about women in politics in the future. But this is a a really interesting piece. It's about uh, patronage. Uh, It's about the fact that politics makes strange bedfellows, Um, uh, all about, uh, you know, the little machinations and and things that happen uh, that the the electorate don't see uh, uh, and how personal relationships so strongly affect uh, one's political feelings and decisions. Uh, great, great opportunity for Edie Falco, uh, who just she's just living the role on stage. As are, as I said, uh, Michael McKean and and Peter Scolari and their roles. I thought um, I've always been back and forth on Scott Elliott as a director. I thought in this case he did an excellent job overall. One thing I noticed that uh, may have been his innovation and I thought helped a lot. There was a lot of overlapping dialogue in the, uh, in the scenes where these people are having heated discussions about what's going on and everyone has an opinion and, you know, who, who, what should we do next and blah, 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 blah. And uh, overlapping dialogue when it's done well, as it is by these three excellent actors, uh, I, I think it's great. It, it has it gives such a feeling of reality to a play. So I, I applauded that. There was um, one thing I noticed that that I thought was odd that it, in at least two of the scenes where they're having these these heated discussions, Polly is sewing, and I thought um, that seemed like just something to give an actor to do. Uh, I don't know if I I, I don't know. I don't, 
I mean, I don't, I don't sew, but I think you have to put enough of your attention on it that it would be hard to have a very passionate discussion while doing it. So I don't know. That didn't ring true to me, but I suppose um, that might be written in the script anyway, and not necessarily Scott Elliott's idea. I'll have to uh, uh, see if I check the script and see what that says. But um, yeah, the true. Uh, Excellent cast, really good production by the new group at Signature Center on 42nd Street. Uh, probably, uh, I'm, I'm thinking maybe somewhat difficult to get a ticket because they have limited runs and we do have some star power here. But but please try because it's very much worth it. Um, so let me jump in here for a second and say that they just announced an extension one week to October 28th. So uh, perhaps Good. there are a few extra tickets uh, right now. They just announced it. So uh, maybe you can get in on that. Peter, what do you think about the uh, new group production of The True? Oh, I liked it a lot as well. Uh, I had some different reactions from what Michael felt. But anyway, I liked when the fact when the lights came up, um, there we were seeing three people in this uh, living room, or Dan maybe. But anyway, a library, really, when you think of it, uh, there are, they have to be 2,000 books on stage and uh, in shelves. And I dare say that um, not one of them looks uh, at all as if it were purchased in this century. In fact, some of them don't even look like they were purchased last century, but before that. And... Um, that they're dusty and old is a, a metaphor, I think, for the fact that um, <laughs> Erastus is no kid anymore and uh, that he may very well uh, lose this primary. But the point is, the lights come up and there is Edie Falco sewing and there are the two men sitting there saying nothing because they don't know what to say and each is in their own uh, little world. Erastus worried about the upcoming election and Peter, that's Peter Scolari's character, his name is actually Peter, um, has no particular interest in politics, and he's really the the, the man behind the woman. I mean, way behind the woman. Uh, he has his own life. He has his own career. He makes money, but he's no part of this world. He wants no part of this world, but he understands his wife has to have the part of this world. Ironically enough, deep in the play is a moment where we find out how much he loves her by an off-stage sound. If you go to the play, look for that. It's, it's a very effective way of saying, I love you, just from an off-stage sound. Okay. Mm. Well, anyway, so they're not saying anything. She is sewing. So given the fact that it's 1977, we're well in our rights to assume that she's, you should pardon the expression, to use a Craig Carnelia line, just a housewife. <laughs> So I like that. And then we find out um, she is hardly that, that, uh, yes, indeed, for the last 40 years, she's helped the mayor be mayor for 35 of those years. It took a while, but that happened. Uh, she's the smartest one in the room and uh, perhaps even in the city of Albany. Uh, and believe me, this Polly wants more than a cracker. Um, she wants uh, her, <laughs> her piece of the action. She does uh, very much so. And uh, the point is that uh, Michael McKean uh, arrest is feels it's time for a change. And the reason he wants the change is not the usual one necessarily, that um, it's time to get young blood, uh, which is always what happens. No, it's not quite that. What it also is, is that many people think that these two have had an affair of long standing, And that, and the husband's heard this too. He has a, a, a monologue where he talks about this, uh, that, um, indeed he's had to endure these slings and, and arrows of outrageous rumors. And are they rumors or are they not? And you might be surprised to find out how that plays out. Uh, so in fact, really, uh, I think the title of the true has to do with the fact that, um, 
really, Polly is quite true to Erastus. And um, I know that considering what I just said a moment ago, you might leap to certain conclusions about that. Not necessarily, but um, she's she's a pretty loyal foot soldier, even um, after she's been, you should pardon the expression, dumped. So, um, And then, of course, there are other politicos there. Um, Howard C. Nolan is the challenger, and Erastus used to be his hero. Um, Erastus was very nice to him when he was a young boy, but young boys, little people grow, as we hear in Les Mis. And um, Howard has grown. Uh, Glenn Fitzgerald is very good in this part, and, um, and certainly fits the bill of being young good-looking and we presume wealthy so um so we we do find out about the fact that loyalty only goes so far that when people have heroes they'll certainly drop those heroes when it's time for them to um get ahead in the world so um so the old it's time for a change card is being played here so um so that happens there um what's really nice about eve falco's performance is she smiles a lot and uh, that may seem to be a liability, but considering what's going on, she smiles when she's told she's being dumped um, because she's really trying to smile her way out of it, thinking that if she smiles enough and doesn't take it seriously, then Erastus will say, nah, I'm only kidding, even though she knows and he knows that he wouldn't have been only kidding. But uh, but that's significant, the fact that she smiles, especially when she does all her dagger-thrusting deliveries. There's a scene where she um, deals with a mentee that she's been entered a guy to a certain degree. She's gotten him a job and she finds out he's not as committed to politics as she is. And my, does she turn on him and, uh-huh. and use his language that um, a, a term that really accurately describes Oedipus Rex. Um, so uh, the, she, she really is a, a tough lady. It's a great character and a great performance. Uh, the finest I've seen this season by an actress in a play. So, uh, but what's really nice is that Char White gives his characters time to act admirably. This isn't just the expected expose of the seamy side of politics. You know, it, there's more to it. it. There are times when these people really are on the level, on the square. So don't expect to happen too often, but it does happen. Um, I also found it interesting that um, Peter is dressed very much like George in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. I don't know if uh, Clint Ramos had that in mind, but it, he might have just put him in uh, that vest and uh, tie. But uh, I do think that uh, that may have been in uh, Clint Ramos's mind. And, of course, there's a lot of George and Martha going on here um, because um, especially when uh, this um, bill comes in, the, the young man who, as I say, turns out not to be that interested in politics, very nicely played by Austin Caldwell, by the way, um, boy, there's some George and Martha type um, arguments going on here. And um, and that's pretty potent as well. So um, <laughs> uh, Michael made a very good point about that um, overlapping dialogue. But what I found really, really compelling is the fact whenever Polly was engaged in overlapping dialogue, why was I listening to her more than the other person? <laughs> <laughs> that's in the writing and that's in Edie Falco. Yes, this is a very, very fine evening. Go see the true. Oh, and we should mention John Panko is also in this show in, I believe, only one scene, and he he really delivers in that scene. Uh, he uh, plays a character called Charlie Ryan, and I, I, I won't say any more about how he fits into the plot, but he really comes through also. And yeah, Austin Caldwell and Tracy Shane is the one 
other member <laughs> of the, of the uh, company that we didn't mention. So that's uh, it's a really really strong cast, and uh, which which happens often at the new group. So that's that's another reason to keep them on your radar. All right. So uh, the new group over at the Signature Center in New York, um, and that is playing through October 28th. Okay, so next up, um, Peter, you got over to the Bristol Riverside Theater to see Irma Bombeck's At Wit's End. Uh, Was this during the same trip uh, to the Walnut Street Theater in Philadelphia, or did you make a separate trip? Nope, same trip. Uh, holiday in the afternoon and Bristol at night because Bristol is closer to New York. Um, it, this is my new favorite theater. I'm crazy about this place. A beautiful, beautiful theater and in a beautiful, beautiful setting. Um, obviously, Riverside is truth in advertising because it is by the river and there's a gazebo and there's a nice little dock and there's plenty of places to have a picnic and all that. And parking isn't hard to find. So um, I, I love this place and I can't wait to go back to see The Rivals, a musical version of The Rivals, which uh, has a book by Peter Kellogg, who did Desperate Measures, which I greatly admire, and uh, music by Stephen Wiener, who um, certainly um, provided the music for uh, The Honeymooners back in Paper Mill last year at this time. So I'm looking forward to that. But in the meantime, I went to see At Wit's End about Irma Bombeck, uh, the, the columnist, uh, who was quite quite successful and not for that long a period of time she died astonishingly young really uh and she really packed it in now what's really wonderful about the story is you find out she is the daughter of a 16 year old girl now usually people like that have a hard time succeeding because uh the people don't have uh, the mothers don't have much money she didn't say if she was a single mother or not but um whether or not she was um presumably her husband um or person who um fathered the child wasn't uh, that much older and these people usually have a tough time uh, staying married and getting money and all that goes with it so the success of Irma Bombeck really has to be applauded that um, she really did uh, very very well and she made her mark by of course talking about um, household matters because she became a mother herself and uh, as she says I am fluent in child because she had certainly more than one so she wrote articles on dieting and um and while still being a housewife, uh, so doing it in a spare time. And you see her both typing, because we're talking about way back when, and also vacuuming and ironing and doing things like this while she's talking for an hour. It's only an hour, this show. Um, but um, she does talk about marriage, saying, I signed up for this life sentence. So she doesn't romanticize. Um, she some, certainly comes down to brass tacks when she says lines like, to get stinking odors out of your kitchen, just stop cooking. Yeah, I mean, really. So see how easy that is? Uh, God bless television, she says, because television, of course, is an excellent babysitter. Uh, I'll tell you, there were times when if they told me when um, when I was uh, when my kid was uh, two, three, four years old, when he used to sit in front of the TV and watch um, Sesame Street, followed by Electric Company, followed by Zoom. um, If somebody told me, you know, it's not good for kids to watch TV an hour and a half at a time. um, There's a good chance uh, he won't turn out to be well, I would have said, I'll take my chances because, you know, <laughs> you just need the time away. And so I understood God bless television uh, tremendously well. She has a wonderfully poignant moment where she talks about um, when you have a favorite child and what makes you have a favorite child. It's not at all what you'd expect 
not at all what you'd expect. So, um, so in the middle of being charming, and Licia Watson, L-I-C-I-A, Watson, who plays the part, um, is charming, certainly throughout, and endearing. Um, she does um, <laughs> occasionally come out with uh, very uh, poignant remarks and very pungent remarks. Um, she also points out that she was up for a lot of criticism for not romanticizing motherhood and um, and wifedom um, that uh, she used to get uh, crank letters saying, you're a terrible mom and I feel bad for your family. She also felt very threatened when she was on a panel with Betty Friedan, um, who certainly had a very different feeling about um, housewives and uh, what they do. Even though Irma Bombeck was definitely writing by that point in time, she wouldn't have been invited on the panel if she hadn't been. Uh, still, you know, uh, it's it's pretty intimidating when uh, the grand doyen of um, feminism comes in and, and you're um, somebody who's writing about the septic tanks. So, so that's true. Um, but she got on the ball and really started paying more attention to feminism and such issue as many women spent all their earnings Working women spend all their earnings on childcare. Very good, um, very good observation. And she also deals with an issue that um, was was dealt with early in Hairspray. Ironically enough, a lyric that was dropped that I'll never understand that was dropped in "Mama, You're a Big um, a Big Girl Now." There was a um, there was a lyric that went, "Mom, you always say to act your age." Well, that's just what I'm trying to do. And that's a terrific lyric. Why that was dropped, I don't know. Because, you know, when parents say act your age and you're 15 years old, you are acting 15 years old. You know, they want you to act older. But that's what they really mean. Act older than your age. But uh, that comes up, too, uh, in this show. And I think it's uh, dealt with very um, successful. So there are a lot of wonderfully funny and real on-the-money observations, such as vacations sound good on paper. And yes, it's true. I, I have never seen more child abuse than at Disneyland or Disney World when I took my kid there. You know, so many parents say, get over here. What are you doing? Didn't I tell you? All that kind of stuff. So vacations do sound good on paper. So, um, but she does come to the conclusion to assist God in a miracle is what having a baby is. So it's um, very well done by Alicia Washington. And what's really um, more than more than moderate interest is the person who directed and that's Jenny Eisenhower. That's the daughter of David and Julie Eisenhower and the granddaughter of one-time President Nixon, um, one-and-a-half-time President Nixon, if you want to look at it in a certain way, um, who really has made a tremendous career as an actress in Philadelphia, just like Ben Dibble is, um, and Mary Martello have done, uh, become stalwarts there. But now she seems to be branching out in direction. I don't know if I ever mentioned this on the podcast, but Margaret Stein, the uh, widow of Julie Stein, asked me to come to a reading of Pretty Bell um, a couple of years ago. Uh, there was a new version being uh, readied, and um, given that I'm the world's biggest fan of Pretty Bell's score, not book, but score, um, and wrote the liner notes for the CD, she invited me to come. And who was playing Pretty Bell? Julie Eisenhower. If somebody had told me in 1971, when I saw the closing night of Pretty Bell in Boston, the next time you see it, you'll be in Margaret Stein's apartment in President Nixon's granddaughter will be playing the role. I would have been quite astounded, believe me. But anyway, that's the way it played out. So Julie Eisner is a terrific actress. And of course, with one person shows, you never know who, <laughs> what the direction really is, how much came from the actress, how much came from the director. But this is a very successful hour. And um, if you don't get to Bristol for this, The Rivals is coming. 
All right. So I have linked to the Bristol Riverside Theater's website for both uh, Irma Bombeck at Wits End and The Rivals. And The Rivals is playing October 30th through November 18th. So looks like you only have two and a half, three weeks or so to see the uh, the Rivals in that time frame. And Irma Bombeck is playing through October 7th. So uh, get over there. By the way... Can. Irma Bombeck wrote a book with the, one of the greatest titles that I that I've ever heard. If if life is a bowl of cherries, what am I doing in the pits? Uh, yes, I always remembered that one. <laughs> one of my favorite books is that uh, when you look like your passport photo, you have to go home. Something along those lines. That's not exactly <laughs> like. Let me yeah, see. yeah, that's mentioned too. Yeah. When you look like your passport photo, it's time to go home. Yeah, that's yeah, you it. Got it right. You got it right. Yeah. Good for you. Oh. Uh, uh, just one of my favorites. So that is great. Uh, let's uh, transition into our musical moment. Um, Michael, you got a chance to see Stephen Brinberg. Was it last night at the Green Room 42? Yes, it was, uh, Saturday for, the 22nd. For the 50th anniversary of Funny Girl. So tell us about this. Yeah, the 50th anniversary of the movie of Funny Girl. I uh, uh, We've been talking about the wonderful opportunities to hear Broadway-related material in, in the several great cabaret and night spot rooms around the city, including the Green Room 42 and Feinstein's 54 Below and Birdland. And one of the things that uh, – the kinds of events that they do is anniversaries, uh, which is always a nice uh, peg to, to hang a show on. Uh, the Golden Rainbow concert that Peter and I – both saw was the, to mark the 50th anniversary opening of that show. And by the way, I'm not sure if either one of us specifically said that the composer and lyricist was on hand for that show, Walter Marks. He was very much there. Uh, and just, you know, <laughs> that adds so greatly uh, to the to the feeling, uh, the, the uh, specialness of these events. Uh, Julie Stein, uh, 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 neither Julie Stein nor Bob Merrill, unfortunately, were able to be present for uh, this Funny Girl concert because they uh, they they both are deceased. Uh, and uh, this it, it wasn't entirely devoted to Funny Girl, but uh, it, it was songs from uh, several sources. Uh, but Steven Brinberg, who is a a very very well known and and popular Barbra Streisand impersonator uh he's he's done the show all over the world and all over the country and uh he sang many times with symphony orchestras conducted by marvin hamlish as barbara um he uh fortunately never has a, a lack of material because she uh, has done so much in her career and sang so many songs and uh and so many films and on stage and concerts um so he can always mix it up and and no two shows are the same but this one was pegged around the opening of the film of funny girl which uh i believe it was the criterion theater uh where it that opened right yeah yeah mm-hmm. inside square which is no longer there um that that's where the new york opening was obviously and uh i was thinking that uh, an interesting sub sub genre of song is uh, that sometimes when stage musicals are made into movies, um, sometimes they have songs that were not 
in the show. And sometimes those songs were written by the person or team responsible for the original score. Uh, and that is the case was the case with Funny Girl. Um, there, there, there's so many. Even if one devotes uh, an entire show just to Funny Girl, you have so many possibilities because there were the songs that were written for the show that didn't make it to the Broadway production. Uh, there are the songs that that did make it to the Broadway production and were cut out for the film, of which there were several. And then we have here, uh, I guess, I guess two songs, but uh, one in particular, a, a title song called Funny Girl, obviously, uh, written by Julie Stein and Bob Merrill for the film. I don't think it's a great song. I, I think it's it's pretty. Um, it did get an Academy Award nomination, which I believe is the goal uh, when <laughs> new songs are written for film versions and musicals because the Academy rules are, you know, obviously then it will be eligible as a best original song. So it, it did get the nomination. It didn't win, but, uh, uh, Steven Brinberg did sing it last night, uh, did a beautiful job with it actually, uh, towards the end of the show. I think actually it was his final number or, or next to final number. And, uh, he also had recorded it some years ago in a live recording that he did at Abbey road studios with a live audience. So that's the, uh, um, recording we're going to leave you with uh, at the end of this podcast is our musical moment uh, just a little footnote footnote i would say in the in the history of funny girl that that uh, julie stein and bob merrill uh presumably several years after the fact revisited funny girl and wrote this title song for it well, it's interesting you say that, Michael, because this must be the only week in uh, New York history where uh, two title songs for Funny Girl were performed. Because um, on Tuesday night, when we did our show at 54 Below, uh, about the best songs that were cut from musicals, we had Jessica Hendy singing the other Funny Girl song. Now, um, way back in 1964, when Funny Girl opened, nine weeks earlier, Hello, Dolly! had opened, and it was a smash hit, and suddenly Louis Armstrong's recording of Funny uh, <laughs> Hello, Dolly! was being played all over the airwaves, and it would eventually reach number one. And Ray Stark, the producer, said, uh, you know, we have to have a title song. We don't have a title song. Julie, Bob, write a title song. And they did. They wrote this very nice up-tempo song, uh, which has lyrics like, a fella loves to be with a funny girl. The evening flies when he's with a funny girl. And the point is that uh, female uh, gigglers do better than wigglers. In other words, fancy dancers are fast on their feet, but not with the answers. So Jessica Hendy did a very nice job with this song. Now, was it ever in Funny Girl? I tell you, uh, the story's a legion about this. I have heard everything from it was in one performance where um, to stories where um, Ray Stark went to Barbara Streisand and said, Ray, 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 I am doing eight shows a week. I'm doing nine songs. I'm acting in the show. Uh, I've got enough to do. You want to promote the show? Yeah, yeah. Okay, I'll do a single. And it became a single record. And um, that was pretty much the end of it, aside from the fact that it showed up on a Columbia uh, album of uh, called, I think, Highlighters 65, um, dealing with um, promoting songs by their artists. And they put that one on. And until that famous Pink Box set came out, I, I think it's in there, um, this Funny Girl song was pretty much laid in obscure but isn't it funny, no pun intended, that um, twice in one week we heard two different Funny Girl songs in uh, in nightclubs in New York? 
Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. I, I did a little bit of reading on it, and I uh, the history does seem so complicated that I I, uh, I didn't want to mention it. But I'm glad you uh, you brought that up to clarify a little bit. I uh, that's yeah, two different title songs. Amazing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. So before we wrap up for today and get on to trivia, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscriber link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to listen to us. iHeartRadio plays us, TuneIn plays us, Stitcher plays us, Google Play plays us, anywhere that you can listen to finer podcasts, you can listen to Broadway Radio. Contact information for Peter from Michael and for me can be found at broadwayradio.com as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. So, Peter, do we have an answer to last week's trivia? Well, I asked the composer lyricist of a musical that would win him a best score, Tony, in that show's opening number, actually quoted three words and six notes from a song he'd written before. Who's he, the show, the song, and the song within the song? Well, the show is Call Me Madam, Irving Berlin's Tony-winning score that even beat out Frank Lesser's Guys and Dolls. I have a feeling that Tony's would like that one back, but uh, I, I think that was, I think that was more, since it was the infancy of the Tony's, I think it was more of a Lifetime Achievement Award for Irving Berlin. Uh, the opening number, Mrs. Sally Adams, includes the words, God Bless America, the song that Berlin wrote in 1918, but as Hershey Felder tells us in his show of 59 59th, kept in his trunk for 20 years. Deb Popple was the first to get it, followed by Ingrid Gammerman and Louise Loder. All women... Hey, we always hear the show Freaks of Guys. What happened? What happened, guys? (laughs) Get on the ball. All right, let's see if you can do better this week. What was the name of the Broadway musical that Sally Ross did at the Schubert Theater? Okay, so if you have an answer to that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's this week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. That's me. I just keep them in stitches. of humor